10, John chapter 10, and uh, I will be reading verses 7 through 10. John chapter 10, verses 7 through 10. And then Jesus, uh, oh, I'll wait. All right. Uh, then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door to the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Amen. Amen. So in this passage, Jesus continues. Jesus continues his discussion with the Pharisees that began with the healing of the man born blind. And in chapter uh, 10, verse 1, he begins this uh, discussion with the Pharisees about the shepherd, or a true shepherd, with the language of most assuredly. Ver that's verily, verily, amen, amen. This is a solemn declaration. And in verse 7, he does the same thing. Now, if you read the chapter, you might think to yourself, well, you know, Jesus is mixing his metaphors here. Because... In, uh, you know, in the introductory verses, look at what he says in verse 2. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. And now he says he's the door. So is he the shepherd of the sheep or is he the door? What, what is he? So my answer would be, yeah, he's mixing his metaphors, so what? <laughs> but that's not a good, you know, that's not a good answer. One commentator writes this, and I think it's really helpful. He says, this tension that people feel because Jesus is mixing his metaphors are largely alleviated when we recognize that this section that we're going to look at now is an expansion of the previous narrative. He's just expanding upon that truth. And particularly, he's expanding further on particular aspects of the illustration, parable, metaphor, whatever you want to call it, um, in verse uh, 6, um, John uses this word that is translated illustration. So even if you take it that way, that this is an illustration, and then what Jesus does is he takes particular aspects of the illustration and then he expands upon them. But he doesn't do it in a way that is in lockstep with what he just previously said. He's using this really as a launching pad to develop this idea more. And particularly what he focuses on in verses 7 through 10 is the gate or the door. In verses 11 through 18, he focuses on the shepherd. And then in verses 26 through 30, he focuses upon the sheep again a little more. So 7 through 10, the gate. 11 through 18, the shepherd, and then 26 through 30, the sheep. 
The sheep is what he focuses on. So if you keep that in mind, uh, the illustration isn't too puzzling and you don't have to rack your head over, well, who's the porter and who's, you know, all of these other things that uh, wouldn't be clear. So in the previous verses, Jesus had been speaking about the door or the gate in another way, in a different way. Here he speaks of uh, the door as the way to salvation. L- listen to how he says this in verse um, um, 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. But in the previous verses, verses 1 through 5, the door was actually access to the sheep, the way in to access the sheep. And we talked about that in previous weeks, of course, there are biblical requirements to have access to the sheep. Here, the door is to the sheep. There, the door was the way to enter into, to quote one author, the care, conduct, and government of the church. Here, in this particular place, this is entrance into the fold. In essence, salvation. That's what he's talking about here. Well, people may think that, you know, baptism, an external confession, taking the Lord's Supper, or coming to church on Sunday, that these things are the way into the church. We have to have it very clear in our hearts that, yes, these are all things Christians do, but this is not the way that you become a member of Christ's church. Faith in Christ alone makes you a member of the household of God. Unless Christ works in the heart of a person by the power of His Spirit to grant them eternal life, they will never see the kingdom of God. Remember his discussion with Nicodemus. So here we have first just plain direction. We must come to Christ as the door. So if a person wants to be saved, he must come to Christ. I love how Keach puts it, and, and uh, how, do, how, how, do, how do I, how do I, I love that John chooses to talk about this, Jesus, right? Where he, John chose to record this. Because in the Gospel of John, for example, you have this discussion with Nicodemus, okay? And um, it, Jesus says this in John chapter 3. Verse 5, John 3, 5. Jesus says, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. <clears throat> now, we covered those verses, and, and um, so I'm not going to give a, a full de- detailed explanation, but in essence, what Jesus is saying in this passage is 
the reason anyone is a Christian, any, anybody is a Christian, is because the Spirit has done a work in their heart. Jesus doesn't say that it's because a person believed. He focuses first and foremost on the internal work of the Spirit, what the Spirit does in the heart of a person. The way that the Baptist Catechism asks this particular question, it asks, how are we made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ Jesus? And I I think commonly, and rightly so, most would answer, and they would say, faith. Faith is the way that we are made partakers. But that is not accurate. First, before faith even comes, it is the work of the Spirit in the heart of a person. Now, uh, that is difficult for many people because it it almost uh, causes a sense of despair in the heart. What am I to do? If, if, If my salvation is left to God, what hope do I have? You have all the hope in the world because God is a merciful Savior. He is gracious and kind. And of course, how does the Spirit do this, though? The the Spirit does this under, and I'll I'll, I'll say it this way, but I'll elaborate. The the Spirit saves people under the preaching of the Word. That's how He saves people. And I don't, uh, yes, I think, predominantly under preaching. I I think that. And uh, the reason for thinking that is the entire Bible. Because that's generally how He's saving people in the Bible through the preaching of his word. But through, through a, a declaration of the gospel, now that can come through you, you reading the word. You're sitting, you read the scriptures, and you come to a place where you understand you, are, you, are, uh, you live in the midst of sin and misery. You need to be delivered from that sin and misery, and the only way to be delivered is through the work of Christ. That can happen through reading the scriptures, through reading a book, through uh, your parents teaching you the word, through many means. But ultimately, the way that the Spirit imparts life is by using the word of God to give life to men and women. The Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ, and He works faith in us. The Spirit gives us and grants to us faith to believe in the work of Christ. Therefore, if we have uh, family members, friends, re- you know, relatives, people that we want to come to faith in Christ, what ought we to do? Of course, we pray, but then we must, in, in humility and in love, present the truth of God to them. And in this way, the Spirit unites us to Christ and to His perfect work. So first, very plainly, we learn from this passage that the only way to be saved is by coming to Christ. We must enter in through the gate. But there are also a number of precious promises in this passage. And observe them with me. Listen to what Jesus says. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Right? Next, he will go in 
and out and find pasture. There's a difference here, right, in the illustration previously developed above. Because here, the sheep go in, and the sheep go out, and they do this in safety. Why? Because the shepherd is there with them. Here, the, uh, the going out, the coming in, the going in, the coming out, that language doesn't mean that they leave the Lord. This is not like First John 2, 9, they went out from us, but they were not of us. Here, the idea is that all of their life, if, if they come through the door, if Christ saves the person, all of their life now is lived under the care of their great shepherd. He protects them. And of course, um, what may have been in the back of his mind and what may have come to the attention of the Pharisees is the blind man. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he found him, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of God? He pursued him. Now this entire life, this man's entire life, now he thought, I've been abandoned. No one loves me. No one to care for me. I've been cast out of the synagogue. What am I going to do? Well, Jesus comes, right? And as he goes in and goes out, now he is under the care of the true shepherd and not these worthless um, Pharisees. An interesting point to note is that Jesus often connects these two truths. Look at Matthew chapter 7. This idea of coming to Christ. Um, Matthew chapter 7. And I'm going to read down to... um, Down to verse 20. Listen how he connects these two truths. This, the uh, only way to heaven is through the person of Christ... And the fact that those who know Christ will be attentive to faults. Not attentive in a good way, but they'll know that there are false prophets in the world. Look at the, the connection here. Um, let, let me read Matthew. Matthew seven thirteen. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by that by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few that find it. And here the idea of difficult is it's confined. It's like those turn turnstiles, or I don't know if you've ever been to a building and you have the big turnstile and it has like poles. Ever been into one of those? And you you got to go in that way. You can't fit three people in that, right? You sometimes can't even fit your book bag. you got to go in and hold your book bag and, and then throw your book bag, right? <laughs> so the, the, the way to heaven is narrow. Why? Because it's through Christ, one person. And now he makes that point, of course, in John using this illustration, this, this, um, this metaphor, that he is the door to heaven. But look what he closely connects to that. Verse 10, false shepherds. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. And look at what he connects uh, um, very closely to this truth. 
Beware of false prophets who come in, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. And, and of course, Jesus has his eye on the Pharisees here. They were wolves in sheep's clothing. They were thieves. And as he says in John 10, what did they come for? Yeah, that's right. They came to destroy God's people. That is what false teachers do. They come to destroy God's people. They destroy God's people doctrinally so that the people are starved. They don't get the truth of God. And what happens to them? Well, slowly they shrivel up and die. They, so doctrinally, morally, in practice, they destroy the people of God because they promote all kinds of sin by their own life and then by the practice of the people. I mean, it's, it's really discouraging for Christian people to sit in a church and to watch people live all manner of ungodly lives and nobody does anything about it. Nobody talks to them. Nobody, nobody's going to initiate formal church discipline. Good, good grief, you know, forget that. We're not going to talk to people about their sin and about their need to live in light of what the Savior tells us. But that becomes such a discouragement to the people of God. The majority of the time when you're talking to people and they say, I don't go to church because the church is full of hypocrites, a common objection, usually that's just hypocrisy on their part. But sometimes there is some reality to that. And may we never be the cause for somebody to say that with any level of conviction and truthfulness. That the reason I won't go there is because y'all are all a bunch of hypocrites. And we have to hang our heads and say, yeah, that's true. May, may it never be that somebody can say that about this church. May God be gracious to us and keep us from that. Note what he says now. All who ever, verse 8, all who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. Now, who are these who came before? Well, look at their character. He tells us that they are thieves and robbers. So, uh, of course, he's, he's, he's not talking about the Old Testament prophets. He's not, talking about, he's not talking about John the Baptist. He's not talking about Moses or any of those who came before him. Who he's talking about is the people that the Old Testament constantly warns about. So, for example, in Jeremiah 23, you have this warning. In Jeremiah 23, in verse 21, Jeremiah 23:21 I have not sent these prophets yet they ran I have not spoken to them yet they prophesied 
But if they had stood in my counsel and had caused my people to hear my words, then I would have turned them from their evil ways and from the evil of their doings. But see, these ran without God's command, right? So if we wanted to use Jesus' metaphor, they entered into the care of the sheep, but they didn't come through the door. They didn't have the biblical qualifications to do what they were supposed to be doing, and they weren't preaching the message that God called them to preach. So they are unfit and unqualified. In Zechariah 1.8, if you remember the time we spent in Zechariah, this verse will... Uh, You'll remember this verse, but in Zechariah 11, verse 8, we hear these words. Uh, begin at verse 7. So I fed the flock for slaughter, in particular the poor of the flock. I took for myself two staffs, the one I called beauty and the other I called bonds, and I fed the flock. I dismissed, I destroyed, or I cut off, or basically fired three shepherds in one month. My soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. These are false shepherds that were in charge of the people. So the character of the people that Jesus is talking about are not Old Testament biblical prophets. They are not um, the at all represented by that godly lot of men. Uh, why? Because Jesus was speaking through them. Jesus was the one who was prophesying through them. Well, now, where does the Bible teach that? In First Peter that we looked at this morning. Hear, hear those words again briefly. In First Peter, beginning at verse 12, you have the prophets prophesying. And what did they prophesy? First Peter, uh, verse 10. The Spirit of Christ was in them. The, the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was Christ himself working by his Spirit in Isaiah, in Moses, in Noah and all of those prophets as they were declaring the truth. So they were speaking for Christ. And when, when faithful pastors open the word of God and, and Bible teachers and Sunday school teachers and moms and dads and grandparents open the Bible and teach the truth to their children, you know who's speaking indirectly to them? Christ. He's there by the power of the Spirit working making the word effectual so that men and women might believe. One commentator writes, Now the people of Israel did listen to the prophets, and those who did not heed them were rebuked in sacred scripture. So in Acts 7.52, the, um, Stephen says, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? That was... Um, their response because the prophets were constantly rebuking them. These men, though, that Jesus is talking about here, those that came before him are like the ones that are there now, these Pharisees who are false shepherds. They are thieves because they take 
what is not theirs for themselves, God's people, God's authority, God's word. They take it for themselves. And they ought not to be teaching. They ought to be put out of the church. Really, what these men are is um, uh, what, what John says in 1 John 2.18. What does he say there? In 1 John, and this is the perspective that we need to have whenever we are encountering false teaching. 1 John 2.18 Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Now, you know, because of the doctrine of the Antichrist, or, or what people think about the Antichrist, you know, they, they focus on a particular individual. And they think to themselves, well, you know, the Antichrist is good thing I'm going to be raptured and I'm not going to be here because that's going to be later. Um, and eventually we'll talk about all that. But listen to what John says. Even now, many antichrists have come. By which we know that it is the last hour. And what do those antichrists do? How, how do you know? How do you know that they're antichrists? Well, he, he, he says at least two things. Look at the first. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be manifest that none of them were of us. So one way that you know someone is, 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 uh, is an antichrist, because that's the language he uses here, is that eventually they leave God's people. right? So they become Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and all of that stuff. So they leave the fold. That's one way. right? They leave the fold. A second way, you know, is because they teach lies. They're false teachers. So whenever you come across a false teacher, even if he is a quote-unquote a Christian or he's in the church of God and he's not teaching the truth, the, the, what should come to mind is he, he probably means well. No, that's not what you should think. What you should think is that is the spirit of the Antichrist. Uh, look at verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things, not quantum physics and all that, but all things pertaining to the truth of the gospel. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth. See, that's what he means by all things, the truth. But because you know it and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. What's his point there? His, well, he takes a key doctrine because this was an issue they were dealing with, is people denying that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah of God. There was some denial there associated with maybe Gnostic teaching. Okay, And what he does is he says the person who teaches false doctrine is the Antichrist. That's how you know a false teacher. And this, these men, you know, they disguise, they, they don't look like, uh, we would say gothic kids, but now what do they call emos? E emos? Emos? Yeah, e emos, <laughs> right? That's not, they, they don't come with, you know, long black hair, looking semi-depressed with eyeliner. and No, that's not how they come, you know? They come with nice hair, business suits, 
bright, shiny teeth, you know, six-pack abs, uh, a, a trophy wife, you know. <laughs> That's how they come. They come disguised as angels of light, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11. Um, Calvin remarks, he says, that no man may be moved by the consideration that there have been teachers in all ages who gave themselves no concern whether about directing men to Christ. Christ expressly states that it is no matter how many there may have been of this discretion or how early they began to appear. There is but one door, and all who leave it and make openings or breaches in the walls are thieves. So uh, it, it doesn't, right, um, it doesn't matter the way they try to get in, right? They're not well-meaning if they don't come through Christ, if they don't give Christ his place, and if they don't teach the truth according to Christ. We turn back to uh, the Gospel of John, <clears throat> John 10, as we, uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll close here. John chapter 10. Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone, in verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come, does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. And this is what they do to their congregations. They steal the truth from them. They steal financially from them, of course. They steal authority that they don't have, and ultimately they kill spiritually, and they destroy. I have come that they may have life. This is the difference. This is the difference between a true shepherd and a false shepherd. And of course, Jesus uh, here is focusing upon himself and upon his own work. He comes to give life. And not just any kind of life, but an abundant life. Now, you know, an, uh, this abundant life, he's not talking about like parasailing, right? You know, like a life full of adventure, jet skiing, and you know. No, he's talking about the fullness of life that he communicates by virtue of the Spirit. He's talking about fellowship with God, communion with God, communion with his people, sharing in the blessings of the new covenant. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about being rich. He's not talking about being powerful. He's talking about conversion. He's talking about the new birth and the blessings that flow into the life of a believer in the midst of all of the difficulties of this world. As they are going in as, and they are coming out, the shepherd is caring for them. The image of Psalm 23 is what should come to mind when you, should, when you read these verses. That care and concern of the shepherd, that is the abundant life. And Jesus says that all who believe in him can have that life. So with those things in mind, brothers and sisters, let's uh, pray, and then we'll stand and sing. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and for the wisdom contained in it. We thank you that you have appointed Christ as our mediator and as the door to heaven, as the door to all of the blessings that you have for us. We ask, Lord, that we would have great confidence in Christ and what he has done for us. May those who do not believe come to know him, come to Christ, and receive him as their Lord and Savior.
And may you please, Lord, pour out your spirit among us. Give us a level of discernment that we don't have now. Increase it, Lord God, that we may be able to to, uh, spot wolves in sheep's clothing. Lord, protect us from such men and women. Help us as your people to hear your voice. In Christ's name we pray, amen.